knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. All of us get uh, extremely hungry every day, and I know for me, and probably for most of us, it's extremely satisfying to fill our bellies with uh, good food, not necessarily just food in and of itself, but you know, here in Houston, we have a huge number of restaurants, so even if you don't uh, know how to cook or don't feel like cooking, you can still go out uh, and get a great meal. Uh, we have restaurants that are open 24 hours a day, so really no matter when you're hungry, uh, you can still go out and feed yourself, whether that's uh, you can go to Whataburger, get a great burger, fries, you can get some spicy ketchup, wash it down with a Dr. Pepper, you go to Chick-fil-A, uh, get a spicy chicken sandwich, you know, maybe get a lemonade, a sweet tea with that, unless it's Sunday like it is today, then you're out of luck. But what's not closed on Sunday is Texas Roadhouse. Go there, get an 11-ounce steak, get your baked potato with the work, so you got bacon and cheese on it, and then you can maybe get a, a salad if you feel a little guilty with all that, wash it down as well with a with a Dr. Pepper. And, you know, these are things that I definitely love to eat and meals that satisfy my body. And, you know, I don't start by sharing these things just to make you hungry and, and hoping that we can get out of here early so you can get lunch, but... You know, the last time we saw the disciples in John chapter 4, they and Jesus were hungry. You know, they come to this well in Samaria and we're told that, that Jesus was wearied from the long journey. They're all hungry. And so the disciples leave that well and leave Jesus at the well and they go into the city in order to buy some food so that they and Jesus can eat. Uh, and they recognize that, hey, you know, we need some food. Our bodies are, are wearied, especially Jesus, and it's going to give us some strength. Uh, and so Jesus, he stays behind. And last time we were in John, we saw this great encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well. Uh, and what an amazing time that he has in, in declaring to her who he is, that he's the Messiah. And she comes to grips with that. But he uses the, the physical things that were there to bring a spiritual lesson to this woman. They're by a well, a well of water. And he uses that well to show her that, hey, you know what? You're thirsty and you're seeking things to fulfill that thirst, but there's only one thing that will truly fulfill that thirst and will be a lasting thing, and that is Jesus himself. And so he teaches her this wonderful lesson, and she comes to understand who he is, and then all of a sudden the disciples come back. They're back with the food. They're back from what they went out to do. And as this woman's there, and we noted that you know rabbis at that time didn't really speak to women, especially Samaritan women, and it was probably a little bit awkward. They're kind of wondering, Jesus, why are you talking to this woman? Well, she leaves and she goes back into the city. And as she goes into the city, she shares with the people of Samaria there. And she says, you know, this man told me all the things that I ever did. Remember that he asked her, you know, bring your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, well, you rightly say you don't have a husband. You, you've been married five times, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. And she's blown away, like, how in the world could you know that? And she comes back to these people. This is the man who knew everything about my life. Could he be the Messiah? And when the crowd hears this, they decide, yeah, we, we want to come and meet this man. And so they start journeying out. This large group of Samaritans are coming out to the well that Jesus is at. And now his disciples are at as well. And that's where we ended the last time we were there. And so we pick up this morning where Jesus is now focused on his disciples. He's been focused on this woman while the disciples have been gone. And now he has a lesson that he wants to teach 
the disciples and he just used something physical to bring out a spiritual lesson with this woman. Physical water, physical well, to bring out the spiritual lesson of where true thirst can be satisfied in Jesus Christ. And now he's going to use something similar, another physical thing. It's going to be food and eating and something that strengthens and satisfies to bring a spiritual lesson to the disciples there that are with him. You see, one of the main things that people pursue You know, you look at what people are ultimately seeking in life. They're seeking something to satisfy themselves. And they try to find satisfaction in all sorts of different things. They they look for it in in careers. They look for it in money. And they look for it in power, in fame, in relationships. They're just seeking to find satisfaction for their life. But the problem with all of those things is they only satisfy for a short bit of time. It's not a lasting satisfaction. You might gain the fame, you might gain the power, you might gain the money, the relationship that you wanted, but it's fleeting. The satisfaction that comes from it is not lasting. You know, for my birthday a couple years ago, people from our church took me to a Brazilian steakhouse. And if you've never been to a Brazilian steakhouse, it's all-you-can-eat steak. And it's not the typical all-you-can-eat restaurant that you know has subpar food, and that's why they give you all-you-can-eat because no one wants to eat that much of it. This is amazing food. And they bring you this, you know, as much as you want. You have this card that's green or red. And if it's green, they come and they have these steaks that are on skewers, and they'll just cut you piece after piece until you tell them to stop. And, you know, it's wonderful. Well, you know, I ate more steak that night than I ever have in my life, and it was very satisfying. I love steak. But you know what? I was super satisfied that night, and guess what? In the morning, which I didn't think would happen, I got hungry again. You know, there was no more satisfaction. My, my belly was like, all right, what's next? You know, and I thought, well, they're the greatest meal I've had, all this great steak, and still I'm not having a lasting satisfaction. And that's the big problem with the things that we look to so often to try to satisfy our lives is they're not lasting. And we we think, oh, I I finally got this and it's going to satisfy me and it doesn't do it. I've achieved the fame, but but it's still not satisfying. I've achieved the power, the relationships, the money. You know, and all you got to do is look at the people who've achieved those things and and look at how miserable they are. Look at how empty they are and lost they are. They think, you know, I, I finally arrived. I finally have the thing that should have satisfied me, but I'm still not. It's fleeting. It was, it was momentary. And sadly, even some of them, when you look to and think, if I had that life, how amazing it would be. Some of these people are taking their own lives. And you think, well, how in the world would you kill yourself when you seem to have everything that someone would want? Because these things are fleeting. They don't bring the satisfaction that we think. Well, Jesus is going to teach a lesson to his disciples about what truly satisfies. About what brings a lasting satisfaction, not only to his life, but also to others if they will follow in his example. And so it's a lesson not only for the disciples to learn, but it's a lesson that you and I need to learn as well. We need to recognize what is it that truly brings a satisfaction to our life. Let's see what we can learn from what Jesus shares. John chapter 4, starting in verse 31, says this. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So the disciples now finally get back from the city. They, they, they bring their food. You know, maybe they have some falafels or who knows what they, they went out to get. It's like, all right, Jesus, we, we, we brought you back your meal. You know, here, eat it. Well, we know that you, when we left you, you were wearied. You were hungry. You know, oh, we, we've made it back. Here you go. Satisfy yourself with this. And notice Jesus' response. I have food to eat of which you do not know. Now, the disciples think that Jesus is referring to a physical meal, physical food, but but he's not referring to physical food at all. And we've seen Jesus do this many times. He just did this with the woman at the well when he was speaking of water and thirst. You know, he, he speaks of this living water that he can offer, something spiritual. And he's doing the same thing with the disciples, but they completely miss it. 
You know, they, they start looking at one another and they say, has anyone brought him anything to eat? I mean, where did Jesus get this food? I mean, you know, did he have some falafel stuffed in his, you know, his pocket this whole time and now he's able to eat it? He was just saving it for, you know, this time when he got hungry. So they're wondering, you know, who brought him food? Did that woman bring him food? You know, where did he get this food? Because we went all the way to the city and back to bring him it. And now he's telling us he has food of which we do not know. But Jesus isn't speaking of physical food. He's not saying that I had some hidden food with me. You see, when the disciples came back with this food, Jesus recognized here is another great teaching opportunity. Just like as he sat with that woman by the well and he looks at this well and he says, you know what? Here is a physical thing that she grasps, that she came to draw from, that I can use to teach a spiritual lesson. These disciples went all the way to the city to bring back a meal. I can take that physical thing that they understand that typically brings strength and satisfaction to someone and I can help them learn a spiritual lesson. So as the disciples are asking one another, you know, who brought Jesus this physical food to eat? Jesus says something that would help them understand. I'm not speaking about physical food. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know, the statement that Jesus gives here is so important. It's so powerful. We need to really grasp what he's trying to communicate here. And I want you to try to, to picture this scene. I mean, you're the disciple. You went all the way into the city. You went and you gathered food. You knew that Jesus, your rabbi, your master is hungry. He's wearied. You make that journey. You come back. You give him this food thinking, oh, you know, he's going to be so pleased with us. Now he can satisfy that hunger. Now he can have strength in his body that he was weary. This food, this physical food is going to give this to him because they understood Hey, physical food does this. It brings strength. It brings satisfaction to your life. And Jesus took that practical understanding that the disciples understood about physical food and what it does for your physical body, and he takes that to teach them a spiritual lesson. My food, the thing that strengthens and satisfies me, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know, the spiritual lesson that Jesus wants the disciples and us to understand is that he had a greater source of strength and a greater source of satisfaction than the food that he ate. The main thing that Jesus' strength came from, the main thing that satisfied him, notice, is doing the will of God and finishing the work that God gave him to do. You know, this is something so important for us to understand because not only is it true for Jesus... It's also true concerning us. Jesus set the example for us to understand that the most satisfying life there is, the one that brings lasting satisfaction, is the one that does the will of God. If that's what you want, if you're truly seeking satisfaction for your life, understand it's not going to come because you're famous. It's not going to come with power. It's not going to come with money. It's not going to come because of some relationship that you have. It's going to come one way only in doing the will of God. You know, there are two words that I want to highlight in Jesus' statement, and those two words are do and finish. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know, something important to understand is lasting satisfaction doesn't just come by knowing the will of God. You got to take it a step farther and actually do what you know. And this is where a lot of Christians struggle. You know, a lot of Christians are not ignorant to the Bible. A lot of Christians have been followers of Jesus for a while. They've heard plenty of messages from the scriptures, and they're pretty clear on the majority of God's will in different areas of your, their life. So it's not a matter of, I don't know it. Unfortunately, though, there are many who know, but don't do. Oh, I know what God says I should do in my marriage, or I know what God says I should do as a parent, or I know how God says I should live to those who hate me. I know how I should be you know, as a man or a woman of God at work or, or in my neighborhood, but I don't do it. And so there's not lasting satisfaction with just a knowledge. You know, Just possessing that knowledge isn't what satisfies. It's taking that and actually putting it into practice. 
If you know God's will for you as a husband, you know God's will for you as a wife, but you're not putting that knowledge into practice, guess what? You're not going to have satisfaction in your marriage. You might want it. You might be seeking it. You might be trying to to find it in other ways, but it's always going to be fleeting until you do the will of God. You could be a parent and you'd be thinking, man, this is such a hard job and I want to be satisfied in parenting my children. I know what the Word of God says, but you know what? That just seems a little foreign to what the culture is telling me. And so I'm not going to do that. And I wonder why I'm not satisfied in this area. If you know what God's will is for you and what you should be living for, what you should be pursuing, and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to live for what I want. I'm going to pursue my will. You're not going to have lasting satisfaction. It comes with doing the will of God. You know, I think one of the reasons, there are many, but one of the reasons we as Christians often choose not to do the will of God that we know. I mean, there's a side of it where there's ignorance, especially when you're a young believer. But one of the reasons that we who know God's will make a a choice to say, I'm not going to do it, is because we've bought into a lie. A lie that this world tells us, a lie that our enemy tells us, and that lie is, it will not satisfy. If you really want to be satisfied in life, then you got to pursue your own will, your own plan, your own desires, your own stuff. And the world will tell you, oh, if you do this and if you do that, you know, that's what's truly going to bring satisfaction. That's truly going to bring, you know, the fulfillment that you want. And we buy into that. We think, well, surely God's will isn't going to be the most satisfying thing for me. And the enemy wants to even go farther than that. You know what? If you do God's will, not only will it not satisfy you, it's going to make you miserable. It's going to be horrible. If you follow God, I mean, think of what he'll do to your life. Think of what he'll make you do. Think of where he'll send you. I mean, your life is just going to be horrible if you do his will instead of your own. And sometimes we buy into that. And we start thinking, yeah, you know what? My will, my plan, that's the thing that's going to bring the most satisfaction to my life. We do not believe sometimes the truth of God's Word that only His will will bring that satisfaction. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, The man of the world thinks that if he could have his own way, he would be perfectly happy, and his dreams of happiness in this state or in the next is comprised in this, that his own wishes will be gratified, his own longings fulfilled, his own desires granted to him. This is all a mistake. A man will never be happy in this way. You know, it's a mistake to think that living our own will will bring satisfaction. And ultimately it comes down to, who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust, you know, the culture and what they tell me? Am I even going to trust my own desires? Or am I going to trust the infallible Word of God, the one who tells me what is true. You know, there was a little girl on her birthday. She received a pincushion from her grandma as a present, a very grandmotherly gift for a little girl. And this little girl's mom says, you know what, you need to write grandma a thank you note for sending you this pincushion for your birthday. And this is what the little girl wrote. Grandma, thank you so much for the pincushion. I have always wanted one, but not very much. I think that's the type of response that we as Christians often have to the will of God in our life. God, I've always wanted to do your will, but not very much. You know, when we're honest with ourselves, that is where we're at sometimes of, you know, oh, I know that's what I'm supposed to feel. I know that's what I'm supposed to say as a Christian. I know, yeah, yeah, you're supposed to do the will of God. But really, if I'm honest with myself, there are times when it's like, I don't want that. Not really very much do I want to pursue that. Actually, what I really want to pursue is my own will, my own desires. Uh, This stuff that the world's presenting seems pretty attractive. It seems like these people are are really satisfied, and, and I really want to pursue those things instead. One of the main reasons we choose our will instead of God's is we just don't buy into the truth that His will's better, His plan's better. His desires are better, and His will is more satisfying than ours. Let me ask you an important question. Have you personally discovered 
that God's will is the most satisfying way to live your life. Not have you read it in the Bible. Not have you had someone like right now tell you that that is the case. But have you personally done God's will so that you have discovered the satisfaction that it brings to your life? Have you personally discovered that following God's will is greater than following your own will or following the will of the world? And if the answer is no, if you haven't personally discovered how satisfying God's will is, maybe because you're living for your own will, I don't want to bring some great condemnation. I just want to challenge you with this. You are missing out on something that's amazing. You're missing out on something that will transform your life and satisfy you in ways you can't even imagine. And the wonderful news is you don't have to continue down that path. If you're saying, you know what, yeah, I haven't been discovering the satisfaction that God's will brings to my life because I'm not really concerned with living for God's will. I've been living for my own. You don't have to continue that. Today it can change. Today you can come before the Lord, repent of what you've been doing, ask for Him to help you to do His will. When you start living for God's will, you're going to learn and discover that deep and lasting satisfaction that, you know, Maybe you haven't discovered in a while, or maybe you never discovered at all. It's going to revolutionize your marriage, your parenting, your relationships. Ultimately, it will revolutionize your life. The greatest way to live your life is to do the will of God. So the first word I want to highlight here is this word do that Jesus says. But the second word I want to highlight is the word finish. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. Jesus finished the work that the Father had for Him to do. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, right before He finally gave up His spirit and died, He says three very important words. It is finished. He's communicating the truth. What I came to do, I completed. I finished the work that the Father gave for me to do. And that ultimate work was to sacrifice Himself on the cross for the sins of the world. And right before, right after He makes that statement, He does give up His life for us. You know what? That's what God wants from us. He doesn't want us just to do His will He also wants us to finish the work He has given us to do. And in order to finish God's work, we need to keep doing His will until we die or or until He comes back and raptures us. You see, oftentimes we as Christians, we'll start well. You know, we'll get saved. We're super excited about what Jesus took us from. Oh, how can I live for Him? I just can't wait to see my life change. And we'll start doing the will of God. And maybe a year goes by or a couple years go by. And all of a sudden, you know, that pursuit and desire to do God's will starts to get a little stagnant. And then we start thinking, you know what? Man, doing my own thing sounds really good. And we move and get sidetracked to to doing our own will in in this area of our life and then maybe in that area of our life. And then we find that we, we started well, but now we're at a point where we once were doing God's will in so much of our life, and now it's in so little of our life. But God doesn't just want us to start the Christian life well. He wants us to finish well. To complete the work. Not just be like, man, those first couple years I did so well, but look at me now. And I get so saddened when I talk with believers who, you know, especially someone who are, who are older and they always are just talking about, you know, the past of, man, look at what God did in my life and, and look at how he used me. And it's like, well, what's he doing now? How's he using you now? Well, I'm not really living for him now. You know, it's just kind of the living in the past. It's like, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can do those things and he can use you in the present as well. But let me encourage you with something I think is very important as we think of that. In Philippians 1.6, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
You know, the thought of like continuing to do God's will until the day that we die can be a little overwhelming, can be, man, I don't know if I can accomplish that. Well, you don't have to in yourself. It's not about you and your strength of like every day I'm going to, you know, figure out how to do the will of God. The wonderful truth we hear is we can be confident that Jesus who began the work is also going to complete it. And we trust in Him. We surrender to Him. We rely upon Him to do that work that He started in us. At the end of Jesus' life, He was able to say those great words, it's finished when it came to doing God's work. What a great way to end our life. Wouldn't that be great that you could end knowing you're about to die and knowing that you could say, you know what, it's finished. I completed what God had given me to do. You know, Paul, he said this about his own life. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know, it's interesting, 2 Timothy is the final letter that Paul writes. He writes it from a Roman prison cell that he's never going to get out of. They're going to take him from that cell, and they're going to execute him. He knows that his time has come to an end. He knows that soon his life is going to be taken from him. And he writes these powerful words, and at the end of this letter, he declares these three very important statements. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. What a wonderful thing to declare. He's not just making that stuff up. That was true for him. You know what? I did what God gave me to do. I fought the fight he gave me. I finished the race he gave me. I kept the faith. And I'm ready to go meet him. I'm ready for my life now to end because I finished what was given to me. You know, when someone comes to the end of their life like Paul did in that Roman prison cell, yeah, the typical thing is people start to reflect back. Reflect back on how they lived. Reflect back on what they lived for. And there's usually two major responses that people have. The first is one of great regret. When they look at how they lived and they look at what they lived for, and often when you come to the end of your life, you start to really prioritize things and discover what's truly important, which is what was, uh, versus what was a waste. What was really significant versus what wasn't. And sadly, many people come with great regret. Regret for what they've been living for. Regret for what they've been pursuing. Recognizing it didn't satisfy and it wasn't worth it. And as I look back at what I could have been living for and who I could have been living for and what he could have done in and through my life, what a waste. But then there's another group. The group that reflects back on their life and they're filled with joy. A man like Paul, when he says, you know, I finished the race, I'm sure he's filled with joy at, you know what, I did what God gave me to do, and there's a great depth of joy that comes with that. And it's not saying that, oh, I always did the will of God, and, and I never sinned, or, or I never had a past that screwed up. But you know what, looking at from the day that we accepted Christ, and, and moving forward, and just seeing, you know what, was I someone that continued to pursue God's will for my life? And as we get older and older, there should be a greater and greater doing of the will of God as opposed to less and less doing the will of God. If today was your final day on this earth and you were looking back on your life, maybe even just the last year, last 10 years, would your response be one of regret? Or would your response be one of joy? And I think that's a telling thing for how you're living right now because if you look back and you're full of regret, something needs to change. If you're thinking even this last year and how I've been living and what I've been pursuing and who I've been living for and I can really just honestly say it's not been God's will but my will and if God were to come back for me or I were to die in some kind of tragic accident tonight, I'd be full of regret in the way in which I've been living. And if that's you... My challenge is make a change in your life. Start living for God's will. Because there's going to come a time, and we don't know how soon it is. The rapture could come at any moment. We could die of whatever. We might have many years to go, but we should ultimately take all the time that we have left to do God's will, not our own. 
So the first spiritual lesson that Jesus teaches His disciples is lasting satisfaction only comes from doing the will of God and finishing the work He has for us. And that's just such an important thing for us to hold on to, to remember as we're seeking it. We all seek satisfaction. That's just within us. We, we want to be satisfied and we need to hold on to the truth that there's only one thing that truly will bring lasting satisfaction and that's doing the will of God and finishing the work He has for us. So Jesus has used food and, and hunger and, and strength and satisfaction to bring home this spiritual lesson to the disciples, but he has another lesson for them and he's going to use another thing that they would be understanding and, and familiar with, reaping and sowing and harvesting. And he's going to bring another spiritual lesson with this illustration. Verses 35-38 through 38 says this, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors." At the time that Jesus is speaking here, you know, this was still four months before the, the wheat harvest would be ready to be harvested. So he understands that, you know, just the practical understanding of the day, farmers and everybody be aware that it's still four months away before we go out and harvest the wheat crop. And so Jesus says, do you not say there are still more four months until uh, comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. So Jesus say, hey, you know that the physical harvest is still four months away. And because of that, farmers aren't looking for the harvest. You know, hey, they're doing other things because they realize we've got plenty of time before the field is ready to be harvested. They're not ready for the harvest because it's four months away. And Jesus is taking the physical harvest that won't be ready for four months and the farmers who are not ready to labor with the harvest and he's helping the disciples see that's not the case with the spiritual harvest. There is a spiritual harvest of people's lives ready right now. And there needs to be laborers ready right now to reap the harvest. Because physically, yeah, you can wait another four months for the harvest, but spiritually... The harvest is ready. And notice Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. Now remember the last thing that we saw before we, we came to the scene with the disciples was the woman that Jesus spoke to at the well. She goes back into the city. She tells the people about Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And so they all start journeying to the well. So you got this huge crowd of Samaritans coming to the well and they're traveling to the well as Jesus is communicating all this stuff to his disciples. And now as he's making this point about a spiritual harvest, he says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they're already white for harvest. And they're probably thinking, uh, we know the fields are not white for harvest. We got four more months until the, the wheat fields get to that place. But as they lift up their eyes, it's not the wheat that Jesus wants them to see. It's this crowd of people that is walking through the field to the well. Lift up your eyes. That's what I'm talking about. Those are the ones that are ready to be harvested. Those are the ones that are ready to receive me and believe in me. They are the ones that I'm speaking about. I'm speaking about a spiritual harvest of souls, not a physical harvest of wheat. And the spiritual lesson that Jesus is making is, hey, these Samaritans, they're ready. They're ready to be harvested. They're ready to believe in me. We just need to go and communicate the truth of who I am to them. Now, Jesus goes on to say some things to make it clear. He's speaking about the spiritual harvest, not the physical harvest of wheat. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Notice Jesus says, He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Now, no matter how great your wheat is, it's not going to produce eternal life. So it's clear that when Jesus is speaking here, he's not speaking of this, you know, this wheat that's going to produce something great for you. He's speaking of something different, a spiritual harvest that when those who place their trust in Jesus, they will now receive the fruits of eternal life. And there are two groups that are a part of that process. Those who sow and those who reap. And both are necessary and both will rejoice at the final product, which is people coming to know Jesus Christ. You see, in order for someone to receive the gospel, the seed of the gospel has to be sown. Someone has to sow the seed by sharing, communicating the gospel message. But oftentimes when we sow the seed, we don't receive the blessing of reaping the harvest. I'm sure most of you who have communicated the gospel have communicated the gospel to someone who didn't turn around and say, I want to receive Jesus. I want to accept him right now. And so you sowed a seed, but you weren't blessed with reaping the harvest of that person coming to a personal faith in Jesus at that moment that you shared that message with them. But it doesn't mean that the seed was sown in vain. Because God can take that and use that seed and He can grow that in that person's life and then someone else later on, maybe it's months later or years later, are going to come and they're going to share with that person the gospel again. They're going to minister to that person and now that person is going to be ready to receive it and the the person that comes along later, they're going to reap the harvest that you sowed before them. So someone else Gets that blessing. So sometimes you're going to be the sower and someone else is going to reap from your labors. And other times you're going to reap from the sowing of someone else. You're going to come and share the gospel and that person's going to be ready and receive it because someone else invested. Someone else was praying. Someone else had communicated the gospel. And you're just blessed because you've come along and they've already been ripe and ready and now you communicate that message and they just want to accept it. And so you're blessed by the labors of those before you. And we go to both. We're sometimes the sower, the laborer who doesn't receive the fruit of the harvest right there. And sometimes we're the ones who's blessed because of someone else doing the work prior to us. And Jesus tells the disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, you guys are about to reap a harvest that you didn't labor for. You didn't sow, you didn't do any of the the labor, the work of planting, but you know what? You're about to reap. Up to this point in time, the two main people that we see sowing are John the Baptist and Jesus himself, but the disciples, they're going to reap. They're going to reap the the harvest right now. They're going to reap the harvest of these Samaritans, but we're going to continue to see them reap the harvest of, of sowing that happened by others, not themselves. And then later we're going to see them sowing their own seed and others being blessed by harvesting what they sowed. Jesus wants the disciples to understand, hey, these Samaritans are ready. The harvest is ready. Others have labored, but you guys, you're about to be blessed by reaping the harvest of these people that are coming here to this well right now. You know, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says something similar to the harvest and people being ready to receive it. Luke 10.2 says, Then Jesus said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, as Christians, I think, especially us Christians here in America, we often conclude that the harvest is small. That there are very few people ready to believe in Jesus. And because of that, we think, you know, only a few believers need to do the the work of reaching people with the gospel because there's not that many people to be reached. But that's not what Jesus says. He says the harvest is truly great and that there are many people ready to believe in Him. The problem's not with the size of the harvest. The problem's with the amount of laborers willing to go and do the work. 
That's the issue that Jesus brings. We don't have enough laborers. It's not that we don't need more laborers because the harvest is so small. Jesus is saying, no, the harvest is huge. The problem is we don't have enough Christian laborers to share the gospel. That's the issue. That's the problem. Not enough people are willing to go and communicate the message to those who are ready to receive it. Because Jesus is saying there's plenty of them if you would just communicate the message. So Jesus says, because that is an issue, pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send out laborers into the harvest. Since the laborers are few, since there's not enough, Jesus says, pray to me that I would send more laborers that I would send more people to reach others with the gospel. And I think that's a wonderful prayer to pray, but I want to challenge you as you pray that prayer, to pray that prayer with an honest heart that says, Lord, I'm willing to be one of the laborers. I know when Jenny and I visited churches as missionaries in Scotland, people would often say, oh, how great it is that you're going and communicating the gospel and stuff. And oh, we pray for more laborers to go. But often what they were saying is, I'm never going to be that person. I will pray that God sends somebody else, but he surely better not try and send me. And I think that's a sad reality that many Christians are at. Is like, yeah, Lord, send so-and-so and send that person. Oh, they'd make a great evangelist, and they'd be wonderful at planting churches, and they would do a great job at sharing with their neighbors. But what about you? To pray that prayer and be like Isaiah that says, here am I, send me. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do it. Hey, you can send me. You can send others. But, but I want to be included if that is what you want. And we know that God has called all believers to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we know that that is His desire where we're at, that we would communicate that. And so as we pray that prayer, be open to the Lord sending you to those that you have a sphere of influence over. So the second spiritual lesson that Jesus teaches His disciples is the harvest of souls is plentiful, so we need to go into all the world and share the Gospel. Jesus is helping His disciples see something that they wouldn't have seen, especially with the group of people that's coming. If they were in Jerusalem and Jesus was saying this, there might have been a different response for them. They might have been thinking, oh, of course, we're in Jerusalem, the holy city. I mean, yeah, Jews, of course, there's a harvest of people ready. Samaritans? We already noted the hatred. We already noted the racism. We already noted how Jews and Samaritans despise one another. And I'm sure for these disciples to look up and see Samaritans coming and Jesus associate the harvest with those people thinking, what are you talking about? No, right there, they're ready to believe in me. They have their own mountain. They have their own temple. They worship a different God. What do you mean they're ready to believe in you? Yes, this group that is not Jewish, that has a background in paganism, they're ready to believe in me. The harvest is ready. Well, now this group's going to come to the well. And let's see what happens. Verses 39 through 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Notice here that what Jesus has shared was put into practice. Jesus sowed a seed into this woman at the well who's now in this place where she's pretty convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And then she goes out into the city and she sows seeds into the people there in Samaria. And her message is basically, man, come meet the person who told me all the things I ever did. I mean, surely this has to be the Messiah. How could anyone know all these things about my life? You guys know my life. You know how many men I've been with. You know how you know people speak of me. He knew this of me. He still loved me. He still revealed himself to me. He still spoke to me. Come meet this guy. So two seeds have been sown, and we see that the woman comes to a belief in Jesus. We're going to see that all these Samaritans are going to come to a belief in Jesus as well. I mentioned that sometimes we sow and someone else reaps. But you know what? There's times that we sow and reap all together. 
that no one else has ever shared the gospel, no one else has ever invested in this person's life, but the word of the Lord and the spirit of God move in such a powerful way that we share that for the first time and we reap in the same moment. That doesn't always happen. It's wonderful when it does, but there are times like that right here. Like we see, man, these people, they hear the message and they're ready to receive it right away. Well, the Samaritans, they get to Jesus and notice what they do. They urged him to stay with them two days. And Jesus does. Now, this is crazy because there's times where, you know, when Jesus meets up with, you know, uh, Gentiles and meets up with others, get out of here. And when he casts the, the demons into the pigs, you know, get out of our country. Okay, I'm gone. You know, there were times even in, in cities in Israel, they didn't want him anymore. and He left. But here you have this group of people who typically... They're very against Jews, and Jews are very against them. And they come to Jesus, a Jew, and his disciples, Jews, and they say, stay with us. What are you talking about? You want us Jews to stay here with you in Samaritan? Yes. What an amazing thing that they wanted, but also the great thing is that Jesus was willing. Because we already noted that most of the rabbis of that time who were Jewish would not even step foot in Samaria. They would take the long way around to get to the northern part of Israel. So not only does Jesus go into Samaria, he's now willing to stay there for two days. And I think this just reminds us of some wonderful things about Jesus. You know, he came to save the world. Not just the Jews, not just a particular group of people. He came to save everyone. And he doesn't reject people who sincerely come to him and want to know more of him, want to believe in him. We, we see him rejecting religious leaders who just want to test him. We see him rejecting others who, who have no real interest in him. But when people come in sincerity, wanting to know more of him, wanting to believe in him, he always makes time for them. He's always available for them because he came to save the world. So he stays with them for two days. And during this time, obviously, Jesus speaks to them. And we're told that many more Samaritans believed in Jesus because of Jesus's own words. Initially, they believed uh, because of the woman. They came to meet him because of what the woman had said. But now they've heard Jesus for themselves. And many more are coming to a belief in him. Now, John doesn't record the conversation that Jesus has with this group of Samaritans for these two days, but we do know that Jesus must have shared two important things. One, that he's the Messiah, and two, that he's the Savior of the world. Why? Well, because that's the conclusion that the Samaritans come to after speaking with him. Notice what they say. Now we believe not because of what you said, speaking to the woman, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world of the world. Now I spoke with Jesus, listening to him speak. I've come to this two conclusion. He is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, and he's the savior of the world. And I think what a wonderful title that these Samaritans give to Jesus, because I wonder if they have always heard from the Jews, because the Jewish mindset at this time was that Jesus was the savior of Israel. I mean, even after Jesus rises from the dead, I mean, it takes a vision from God for Peter to go to a Gentile. They did not believe that God was going to save Gentiles. They thought Jesus, the Messiah, is the Savior of Jews and Jews alone. And so for them to see these Samaritans recognize, well, wait a second, you're not just the Savior of Jews. And Jews hated Samaritans, and I'm sure one of the things they would say is, yeah, the Messiah's coming to save us but he's coming to cast you into hell. He's not coming for you guys. You guys are horrible. And so I'm sure that they, they had that. And now all of a sudden they speak with Jesus and Jesus not only reveals, I'm the Messiah, but I didn't just come for Jews. I came for you as well. I came for everyone. I'm the savior of the world for Jew, for Samaritan, for Gentile. And what a wonderful thing that they understood. And what a blessing to them because they realized you came for me. You're going to give your life for me. You know, the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world is something this world desperately needs to know. You know, when you think of what is the world, when they, when they look at Jesus, what do they think? And sadly, I don't think this would be at the top of the list or maybe on the list at all when people would describe Jesus. Well, what is Jesus? Well, he's the Savior of the world. 
Many might say he's the condemner of the world. He's the judger of the world. He's the hater of the world. He's something of that nature. But, but typically people don't conclude Jesus is the Savior. They might say some nice things like he's the teacher or the prophet. But the Savior of the world? Now there's an aspect that's true of he is a teacher and he is going to judge. But you know what? How desperate the world needs to know he's the Savior. But how are they going to know that? Unless people who truly know the truth of Jesus communicate that. And those people are us. You know, Satan wants them to stay with the belief that uh, Jesus is something that he's not. He wants them to never see the truth that, that he came to save them. He, he just wants them to think, well, he's just going to judge me. And why should I live for someone like that? He hates me. Satan doesn't want them to understand that he loves them desperately, that he gave his life for them. And, and that message is something that we are called to proclaim. That this world would know. Whether they choose to accept it or not is not on us, but that they would know that He is the Savior for them, personally. So in these verses, Jesus teaches His disciples and us two very important spiritual lessons. First, lasting satisfaction only comes from doing the will of God and finishing the work He has for us. And second, the harvest of souls is plentiful, so we need to go into all the world and share the gospel. That's part of God's will. You know, we look and, and so often when we think of God's will, we just think of like a specific will. What does God specifically want from my life? And that's good to know. But you know what? There's a general will of God for every single believer. You know, when you look at, you know, marriage, it's general. The, the exact same thing for every husband and every wife, God says. For parenting, the same thing. For how to love enemies, for how to deal with, you know, just being a godly person. You know, this is a, a general thing. One of the callings that all believers have, not just those who are evangelists or those who are pastors, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's for everyone. And so sometimes we, we're just so focused on what's the specific will of God for my life, which is good, but we ignore well, what's the general will that's really clear. You know, if I would just start with that, I'd be doing really well. And this is one of those, that we would go and preach the gospel, but it's not the only thing. There's many different aspects of our life where God shares His will. And we discover that in His Word. And this is why it's so important, because I, I emphasize the, the importance of doing the will, but guess what? You can't do what you don't know. Knowledge alone is useless, but... If you can't do, if you don't have the knowledge, so you need to be in the Word. You need to know what God's will is in different areas of your life so that you can put it into practice. Study His Word, discover His will, and then do it. And you will find, as Jesus did, lasting satisfaction in doing that. I want to close just taking some time to just be quiet. We often pray aloud. I just want today just to be a time between you and God, a time for us to pray, but just be quiet. Because if today you're looking back at your life and you're saying, you know what, in this area, in that area, I'm doing well, but here and here, man, I'm not doing God's will at all. I know what I should be doing. I'm not putting it into practice. I want to encourage you, don't just leave here content with that. Come before the Lord, repent of the fact that you haven't been doing what you should, and ask Him to help you change. Ask Him to help you be putting into practice what His will is in every area of your life. And so let's just take some time to be quiet before the Lord and, and then I'll close us in prayer.